want it. They want it. Happy you, Katerina Bridge, you filthy ingrates. You people who were in love with the benevolent Wilford would have frozen solid 18 years ago today. You people who have suckled the generous titty of Wilford ever since for food and shelter. And now, in front of our hallowed water supply section, no less, you repay his kindness with violent hooliganism. Precisely 74% of you shall die. Welcome to Filmstrip, featuring Nick and Jay. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of Snowpiercer, starring Chris Evans, Song Kang-ho, Tilda Swinton, Jamie Bell, Octavia Spencer, John Hurt, and Ed Harris. Directed by Bong Joon-ho, released in 2013 or 2014, depending on what part of the globe you're from, on a budget of $40 million, grossed 86.8 at the box office, and a heap of critical acclaim. Now, you actually started this as a discussion on Facebook over on the Fabish Factor page, and... Uh, I decided, hey, you know what? I haven't seen this, uh, heard a lot of talk about it. Maybe it'd make for a good podcast. So tell me how you found out about Snowpiercer. I found out through the means online. Um, a lot of the uh, movie websites that I uh, frequent were talking about this movie and then bringing up, you know, that it's on Netflix. So went ahead and decided to check it out. Um, I know the director, or at least I've heard of him. I've heard of some of the movies that he's directed and, you know, kind of Korean films. And they kind of got that whole, like, I guess like that old boy type vibe to him, you know, kind yeah. of like a gritty filmmaking, but real, you know, artsy, but polished, you know, kind of like all over the place, but a very competent, very good movies. And I also heard that Chris Evans is in this movie, um, got into plenty of arguments online before. I think Chris Evans is the greatest action movie star right now. I think he's a fantastic actor. He basically won me over with the movie Sunshine, a movie I hope that we review one day on here. And been a fan of his ever since. I think he's great as Captain America, especially the last movie where in the um, the Winter Soldier, which he was unbelievable in. So knowing that he was in Snowpiercer, decided to uh, check it out one night on Netflix. Uh, it took me two times to get through. Unfortunately, I uh, decided to watch it on one of those. You know, got home from the bar and put it on at 11:30 at night, and fell asleep halfway through. And I remember just being like, you know, normally in a circumstance like that, I'll be like, okay, I'll try to re- rewind back to or fast forward to where I probably fell asleep, but I actually went back and rewatched the whole thing again. And we'll get into my thoughts on why I did that later. Yeah. And like I say, I knew nothing about this other than just hearing people or seeing people post about it and hearing people talk about it, stuff like that. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'd, I'd had it in my queue 
uh, for a while. And finally, uh, sat down after we had decided let's record this, and I sat down with my wife to watch it because she's into a lot of this post-apocalyptic stuff. Like she does the Hunger Games, and she's all up in that, and likes Divergent and things like that. And so I said, ah, this is. I think this is kind of like the Hunger Games on a train, you know. I knowing really nothing more than just the basic synopsis of what it was about, and it it's definitely not that. I'll go ahead and say that. But it, I, I no, definitely not. Yeah, See, I didn't even know it was on a train when I first read about it. I knew absolutely nothing about the film. I thought, you know, seeing the poster for it with Chris Evans, I thought this was going to be maybe like a old boy type movie where it's, you know, one guy versus, you know, the world. I had no idea it took place on a train. I had no idea it was post-apocalyptic. I had no idea what was coming into this movie. Yeah, you mentioned the Asian, uh, you know, influences here, the Korean influences and stuff, and I like a lot of those action films, like going back to like Infernal Affairs, which was the basis for The Departed, and then I've seen the old, old boy, if you will, and then I saw the Spike Lee one. Maybe we can get around to doing those one day, too. But I'm I'm cool for those. Like, Asian noir is, is cool for me. Back, I think back to when we did the Hellraiser series, and that, there certainly was a lot of crap in that thing, but one of the, the jewels of it was the Scott Derrickson fifth entry that was a very much a neo-noir kind of thing. So I like that type of stuff. And this seemed to be like a, a mix of sci-fi action and maybe a little horror. At least I was expecting that. I don't know that it is horror, but we can talk about it as we get into it. But I only watched it once uh, for this review. Did watch it straight through, but um, have listened to a lot of interviews and read a lot of other stuff about it. So looking forward to getting into it here tonight. Excellent. Yeah, I haven't heard any of the... Uh... I haven't read any interviews or anything like that. I basically I've watched this movie now four times, and that's all I know about it. It's actually one of the few movies where I haven't uh, sought out interviews or behind-the-scenes stuff, so I'll be interested to hear what you know about it. Well, there, and there's a lot of talk about it on the internet, just in you know third places too. I think a lot of people have opinions about it, and we'll, particularly that ending, which I guess we'll get to. But let me go ahead and run a plot summary here for us, and then we'll get into discussing the film. So, okay. in in the future, a failed climate change experiment kills all life on the planet, ushering in a new ice age. And for 17 years, the lucky few hundred or thousand that are aboard the Snowpiercer, a train that travels around the globe, exist in a very strict class system, separated by the different cars. A revolution arises spearheaded by Curtis Everett, played by Chris Evans, and the mastermind of the stern class, Gilliam, played by John Hurt. In an effort to get to the front of the train and take out the leader and designer, Wilford, played by Ed Harris. Along the way, Everett and his ragtag group break out of the prison car security system, uh, or break out of the prison car, a security system designer named Goong Minsu and his daughter, Yona, paying them to unlock the doors ahead with a drug both he and his daughter are addicted to called Chronol. Uh, the revolutionaries go through various battles that we'll get into. Gilliam is ultimately executed. Some of Wilford's uh, lieutenants get it. A lot of Everett's friends die. But ultimately, they reach the last door where Wilford lets Curtis in on a little secret. The revolution, and really any revolution in the last 17 years, are orchestrated by Wilford and Gilliam as a way to keep people in their place and to thin the growing packs of folks on the train. Curtis's revolution has proved to be so successful that Wilford wants to turn over the train's front car engine and all power and luxuries to him as he's grown old and tired of the duty. But Curtis rejects the offer and, with the help of his doorbreakers, concocts an explosive out of amounts of uh, chronol that they've collected that derails the train from an icy mountaintop and only two survive the explosion and the crash, Yona and a little boy from the lower class that they've been going after the whole time. As the two emerge and realize they're not going to die in the cold weather, they spot a polar bear giving them hope that life outside the train is not only possible, but exists as credits roll. And that's really the tightest way I can summarize 
this movie. Um, and the thing that got me about it, I think immediately, Nick, was how we're just thrown right into this. So you get a little bit of exposition card at the front that tells you, you know, what happened and and then we're right into it. We go right into the main story. And I like that as a storytelling convention. I, I like when we just throw us in and you have to pick up and figure out the world as we go along. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's a very, very brief setup and a setup that we've seen so many times, you know, with, with pretty much so many movies and even TV shows like, you know, the walking dead, like, okay, zombies are here and we're going to set you in the in the footsteps of one main character and you're going to go. And that's essentially what they do here is they set you up in this, basically the rear end of the train. I mean, this couldn't be any more of an analogy to, you know, back of the bus politics back in, you know, the uh, ages of, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, Jay? Civil um, rights era? So the civil rights era. And... It's what you get here. You got Chris Evans, who's kind of like, you know, the to me, he seemed like kind of like the up-and-coming leader here who's going to take over for uh, John Hurt's character. And they're trying to plan some type of, you know, coup de gras here where they're going to go and essentially force, you know, planning on forcing their way up to the front of the train. But what kind of got me, though, and kind of got me thinking about Soil and Green for a little bit is one of the setups that they had here was that Everybody in the back of this train is being fed these little black protein bars. Now, what, what did you make of that? Were you kind of going down the same path as me, thinking that that's people? I, I wondered, and my wife and I were sitting there going, like, are they feeding them people? Because one of the first things we see is they're lining everybody up, and they're getting ready to pass out the bars. Is This woman in this yellow coat comes down the line, and she starts measuring these children and taking them away. And you know that's where the little boy gets taken away and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, they're, they're turning those into children. And what we find out later is it's basically just insects ground up and turned into these little blocks, which is even more horrific, I think, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I was doing the same thing. I was like, what is that made out of? That can't be good. And I thought the neatest convention of it was he's walking around for five minutes, looking at him and going, no, that's not the one. That's not the one I need. And I'm like, well, need for what? And I always like stories that make me pay attention and keep up with it. And what we find is that somebody up at the front is sending him notes you know, the, the, through the revolution, you know, down the line, they've got a compatriot up front because every good conspiracy has to have these, right? And mm-hmm. they're sending them notes about, you know, what to do, who to break out, et cetera. So I liked all of that, and I liked the setup here where he's clearly the 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 leader on the ground while when we meet Gilliam, he, you know, he's got one arm, one leg. He's, he's the brains behind the operation, but he's no longer physically able to do anything. Yeah, and um, I guess... Another really kind of like, you know, just kind of setting up in this whole you know, post-apocalyptic, um, very, you know, authoritative system uh, kind of brings me back to kind of like The Walking Dead with like the governor. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that show, Jay. But um, after they uh, take these kids, you know, one of the fathers of the sons, of course, he's very, very upset. He has no idea what's going to become of his son. And what he does is I think he... Um, he throws kind a of, shoe. Like, throws, yeah, yeah, he throws, he throws a, a shoe, shoe yeah. at, at one of the uh, main girls. And how they decide to basically punish him is not to kill him, but to open up the train and basically show how show the audience. I mean, this is a good way of showing the audience how brutal the conditions are out there by taking like almost like a grommet type thing around his arm and then opening up the train and then putting his arm out there for a set amount of time and of course what happens is his arm freezes completely and then they shatter it with a hammer yeah kind of a 
guess a pretty good way to have crowd control, and it's also a good setup to one of the uh, main prota- antagonists of the movie, uh, Tilda Sweden. In I don't know what what kind of role you can call call this <laughs> that she is. It's it's a very interesting performance, very good performance. She kind of reminds me of kind of like the nasty librarian everybody had in elementary school. <laughs> she definitely has that that or the nasty lunch lady something, but she's like the 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 mouthpiece for the front. She's the I don't know the the minister of of all you know knowledge and stuff coming down through the train and keeping people in their class. And you mentioned the civil rights you know motif. I I got a little more of like modern stuff like the whole Occupy Wall Street and the one percent versus the ninety nine percent stuff and mix that with like how the world works out in some of these films. Like I don't know if you saw In Time or not, but it kind of works out that way with the the uh, Justin Timberlake movie, which is actually a lot better than you you'd think it was. But or or movie like even like going back to like a movie like Mad Max or even dare I say like Waterworld or something like that where these these societies pop up and exist um, that are based on class and caste system. I mean it's all about the haves and the have-nots and stuff. And clearly, and what we'll learn is that the people on the back were the people that just jumped on the train and got there quick enough to go. Everybody else had a ticket or bought in or et cetera or, or bought their way through it. And this minister Mason woman and you know, is, is going to be our lead antagonist because I didn't know Wilford was going to turn out to be Ed Harris and what his role was going to be. But I knew that was going to be somebody that we didn't get to to the third act. Anyway, she was going to be the, the main antagonist for a while. And I, I liked it. I thought it was a grand performance. Yeah, no, it's great. It's like, she's almost like the white house correspondent in a way. She's speaking for the president. And it actually even kind of brought back, uh, thoughts about, um, Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. If you ever seen that, like, yes. you know, kind of like how you got like Master Blaster and stuff like that, and you know how you know, get different class systems all set up. I mean, it, it all pretty much all takes a lot of tropes from post-apocalyptic movies, and then also has kind of a, you could say, I mean, there's a there's a very very strong, you know, subtext here about capitalism as well. Oh, about, very much you know, so. Yeah, it's it's all over this thing. I mean, the thing the thing about this movie that I think makes it work is that it goes a little bit deeper than just those surface level tropes and things. It, once what we find out is really how deluded and misguided everyone is. We we'll get more to that as we get into it. But I I yeah. thought the way they were setting this world up, where we had to get behind these revolutionaries and stuff, the way to do it is is you give them reason to revolt. I mean, they take uh, the Octavia Spencer's kid, which I love. Octavia Spencer. She's really come into vogue, you know, since The Help and some other things and stuff. But I mean, I've seen her in movies for years. She was in SWAT. She was in one of the Iron Man or Spider-Man movies. She's had a lot of bit parts and things. And then she's even been in, you know, stuff like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and you know, several other. Yeah, she she made the shit pie, right? <laughs> yes, she did. So Okay. Yeah, that's all you had to say. You gotta call it the shit pie girl. <laughs> I, I know who that is. That's her. Yeah, but I, I like her though because she's got a lot of like fire and spunk, you know, and she's just sort of this, I don't know, this more vivacious version of Oprah. I hate to, you know, stereotype her, but that's really what she comes off as, and she plays that really well. And I liked yeah, her. I, I like Jamie Bell, his little lieutenant guy. I, I was intrigued by the stern passengers revolting. I mean, this would have been like if uh, the Jack character in Titanic led an actual, you know, militarized revolt against the uh, mm-hmm. the lead passengers if Cameron had mixed his Terminator with his uh, Titanic back in the 90s. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking about kind of like, you know, 
how it kind of demonstrates, you know, the one versus 99 and stuff like that. I think another movie that really tried to do it, but in my opinion failed, was The Dark Knight Rises. Mm -hmm. And kind of trying to have that whole motif, you know, attack on Wall Street and everything like that. But this movie succeeds in every which way that movie fails. Yeah, especially with that plot point, I agree. I like The Dark Knight Rises. I think that's part of the weakest part of the story. And I think because... I, I really don't think Nolan believed in that part of it anyway. I think that's what he was interested in. Well, that 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 didn't see guys big as Bane driving on a crotch rocket never, or actually not even a crotch rocket <laughs> on a motocross bike never sat well with me. But we, that's yeah something we could talk about if we ever decide <laughs> to review those. If, if I ever decide to review those movies, I know you have already did, but uh, I got strong yep. opinions on that. I would actually would love to review those movies with Kurt because I think that would be a pretty good battle. I think I think that could be an interesting discussion. But back to Snowpiercer here, the first stop along the way. Once they, they get past the the first wave, and what I love is that they figure out the guards with the guns, the guns aren't loaded because the Minister Mason woman says, put that useless thing down, and they pick up on it, and they go, wait a minute, these the bullets are gone. They've, they've had to have used them all up by now, and I thought, you know, what a great idea because, yeah, at some point, you'd think that would be something that would become in completely obsolete supply. There wouldn't be bullets anymore. Mm-hmm. So the idea— Yeah, how are they going to— yeah, just yeah how are they going to manufacture guns. them? Well, see, and that brought me back to like what I know a lot about history and World War II and, and Germany and things like that. Hitler would stage you know, these militaries out there with unloaded weapons, unloaded tanks and stuff just to show he had them just to scare people. You know, I mean, yeah. they weren't even armed, but the idea of it being their deterrence, you know, can can be just as strong as as actually using it. And I love how they call them on it and they were able to beat their way forward and and get to going and they get to their prison block and they break out uh, really our other main character, the one we're going to spend the most time with. And that's the one played by Song Kang Ho, if, I, if I'm saying his name right, uh, mm-hmm. Min Su. And I, yep. I, I love this guy. Because, and the best part about this to me is at no time does he speak a single word of English and at no time is any of it subtitled. I love that. And I loved how everyone was just able to talk to each other. That to me was was amazing. What did you you know just the just the rewind a little bit? But what did you think about their escape plan about how they put that forth? Oh, I loved it. I thought I thought it was well done. I mean, it was a great idea. You do wave upon wave to go after them. I thought that that was really smart. And then to have the big barrels and the guy running, yeah, that was great. Yeah, I loved I loved the way they did the barrels because you really think about it, it's pretty ingenious because these barrels were essentially what they were sleeping and they were kind of like you know, makeshift beds for them. And what they did was, you know, they put them all together into a big ring or no, a big, big cylinder that Mm -hmm. they had the doors timed out with, you know, how long they stay open. And essentially at the right moment, they ran it forward. So none of the doors could close. Yeah. Cause you know, at some point they've got to defeat that technology and they know they'll only be able to do that once, which is thus the hints of having to get this guy out of the prison break. Yep. So they go in after they got there. They get they get over to the, um, what is he, like the master security guy, the guy who came yeah. with the security for the yeah. train, and mm-hmm. he's all locked away. Essentially, it's he's locked away almost like in a box, you know, like a, when you go to the morgue, he's like in almost like an ice <laughs> box or something yes. like that that they open him out of, and, you know, he awakens. You can totally tell this guy is hungover or he's having with serious withdrawals from this drug. Mm-hmm. And this chrono 
is what is it like an explosive it's, thing well, or it, what I understood is it was little blocks of industrial waste, but it looks like pool cue chalk. <laughs> you know, that's that's the thing, and it may be for all I know. But it, it probably is. Yeah, yeah, pro- probably was because I mean, this movie had forty million dollars, but they, they clearly had to spend it on a lot of stuff. But I thought that was a great idea because they never bothered to really explain how they came up with the drug or whatever. It's just the idea that even when all of society totally fails, people are still going to find a way to get high. You know, Chris Rock yeah. had a whole thing about that forever. Like, if you ban all the drugs in the world, somebody will sit around in their basement and go, man, if you put a bunch of kerosene in the bottom of a baby bottle with some apple juice and get it hot, it will mess you up. You know, and people are going to find a way to get high. And I, I love that trope that they throw in there, that even so, people are still going to find a way. And as it turns out, he actually traded a bunch of protein blocks for a pile of this stuff from somebody in the in the back class, so they're able to basically pay this guy to unlock each door. And the deal he strikes is, you got to get my daughter, and the the two of us will do all your door unlockings, but you got to pay us every, at every door with the chrono. And I don't know. I thought it was cool. The thing that we learn about it from Minsu later on is that it, you mash enough of it together, and it it is an explosive. Yep. And actually, I kind of got to bring back to your point about uh, subtitles. Uh, Jay, I think you watched the movie wrong because he does have subtitles. You must have had the subtitles turned I, off. I probably did, and I did not see subtitles. So that's great. You know what? I was giving the movie all this credit for like being ingenious and go, no. Yeah, I know you're, you're sitting there like bringing back stuff like The Godfather. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, they're having this very intellectual speech in Italian, and no one yeah. can understand it because you're taking it from the point of view of Al Pacino, who can't understand it as well. But <laughs> right. no, you just had the subtitles turned off, I just Jay. had it turned off. Well, I've, I've also been uh, – it. I've watched that show Switched at Birth a lot, and there's there's several characters in there that speak only in ALS, and so and they get into like sign language arguments, but there's no sound, so you have to read really quickly. And occasionally they won't even put the subtitles up; it'll just be there, you know, flinging hands and, and arguing. And I like that kind of stuff. I thought that was a good storytelling convention. So I'll go ahead and tell you now, folks, whether I recommend this to you or not, and give it a high rating. If you do watch it, turn the subtitles off. It makes it so much more inventive. So it's funny you say that. I always imagine it'd be something like Snatch, where the guy's talking real fast and the subtitles just have question marks at the bottom going, exactly. we don't know either. Yeah, exactly. Like, who, who knows? But no, I, I did I did like this character, though. The idea that we had to have this other person who not only would be the door unlocker, I mean, he's, he's that, but as it comes to it, finally, he's the one that Chris Evans' character is going to really open up to and have this long exposition at the end about how life had really gone awry and, and we'll get into all that. But I, I don't know. I like this guy and I like the fact that you know he was willing to help them with their little revolution just for the chance to well at the time we think it's just to get high. I reading it now, I think his plan all along is like, well if these people are serious, I'm gonna blow this train off the tracks. Cause he think he knows something that no one else knows and that's that if you're in the right place you can survive outside. Yeah, he's he's got some stuff that he knows, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But I tell you this though I haven't smoked a cigarette in in years, but man, did he make looking smoking a cigarette look pretty enjoyable? Yeah, I love Octavia. Like the last two cigarettes in existence. Yeah, Octavia's like Marlboro Lights, and I'm like, man, I'm taking back to my sophomore year of college. So you know, I mean, really, it felt that way. But I I like that though. I like that trope. I thought that was neat. That yeah, this would be the guy that had the last two cigarettes in existence, and he smokes one, and he's also got the last two matches in existence. That should be pointed out too, because he he's got things to light fire with because otherwise they don't really you know we don't know how they they're going to get any of that done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But I liked, again, they're moving forward and we, we get into doing things. So what did you make of his daughter before we move on to some of the big battles and things? What did you think of her? Um, I guess I, I guess just for her character's sake, I always thought that that's going to be – she was there essentially just to humanize him I think a little bit more because if you had this guy who essentially was like the security guy and he gets broken out, what motivation does he have to even help these people out at this point? I mean he was locked away for some reason. He doesn't have much of a life. I think what it does is it adds a little bit more of an element to him in the fact that He's doing this to be able to help his daughter or maybe try to give her a chance or trying to, you know, maybe in Chris Evans' mind to be able to, you know, they can take over this train and make like a peaceful utopia like they like and then she can have a decent life in there. I think what that does is just kind of humanize this character it does, and the thing about it is once you know the twist of the film and you know how it ultimately all works out, it makes you question his motivation a little differently, I think. At least I do, just just watching him going, well, does this guy know – was he put there by Wilford at the, you know, to be this – you know, doorbreaker, so they would have that help, or is he really just helping them along to get his daughter out, or what's the deal? I mean, it's never explained, so it's, it's left for us to guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think in a way that he probably was left there by Wilford to help them out, but his you know, final intentions were something that Wilford never ever envisioned. Yeah. Because I, who you know, who 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 would want to, you know, we'll spoil it now, I mean, try to blow open the train and try to escape, I mean, that's instant death, so what's the point? Well, and maybe that's what he wanted, is he wanted all this to be over with. We don't know. I mean, that's a good that's a good question to see if that's what he was hoping for, but I, we'll get but to, to me though too. I think that kind of, but it goes back to his daughter though. Mm-hmm. Is if he wants to die, he wants to kill his daughter too. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Well, is like, well, kind of think back to Lethal Weapon and Danny Glover with his, you know, grenade. If she gonna die, she gonna die my way, not yours. You know, I mean, not, I could see that. You telling me this girl was in a condom commercial? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think those survived either. Clearly, by the <laughs> the the herd thinning. Uh, practices of the front cars but more to that let's get into the the biggest fight i guess the big fight that goes down they wind up um getting just just outside of the water supply and gilliam and and uh um everett are talking about you know we we got a hold of the water supply we've got them by the balls i mean we you know this is exactly what we want and they're they're making up their plan as they go in there to go for the fight all that's standing in front of them is i mean all i, I sat there going was like it's like a bunch of S&M people, but with axes and knives. <laughs> you know, it's all these black masks and this. I, I actually was taken back to one of the other Hellraisers where, the, like, the weird train. You know, I didn't know what was about to happen. I just knew it was about to get bloody. And this is another trope of, like, the, these Asian films. Like, the, they always have some kind of fight with an axe or a knife. And it's just, it's gore uh, galore all over the well, place. Well, at, at this point, it's, it's and this isn't a slight against the movie, but it's video game logic. They're on to the next level, and the next <laughs> villains are these guys that all look alike. They all have the same weapons. They all have the same outfits on and everything like that, and they got to go take them out. And one thing I still do not understand is when they first enter in this train car and they got all these masked guys with axes just you know standing line after line after line, what's with the fish that they're passing this fish around? And they're essentially almost doing like a blood ritual with this you know, trout, and they're cutting into it and getting blood on the blade. I 
guess maybe I I, I'm not, I didn't. I don't, what... I don't. I don't know. My wife and I were like, "Are they poisoning everybody with the poison fish? Is that what it is? Is it a cuttlefish? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm. It's not explained. So it's maybe it was a ritual. I don't know. Or maybe it's just weird shit. Yeah, it could in. be weird shit, or maybe it's some type of Eastern culture thing that you know maybe we're just ignorant of or something, True. and some type of you know. You know, Korean War thing that they used to do back in the day. I'm I'm not sure. So, but but it yep. was kind of a kind of a cool like little visual moment. And that's thing. One thing I want to talk about too is just the visuals on this movie are just fantastic. I mean, when you're first in this movie, it's very you know gray and black. I mean, that, that that's essentially the whole color tone of what you're getting throughout the beginning of the movie. Is you got the gray, you got the black, you got the white outside. And it really makes, like, you know, when people are getting stabbed or getting sliced up with the axe, the blood splatters really kind of stand out. But even in that, I mean, even though it's like that, it's still very much alive. And one thing I really like is anytime they're showing a shot of, you know, the people standing there and you can see further down the train, you can see the whole thing kind of rocking. You know, each each car in itself is rocking its own way, just like a train. And, you know, you bring up $40 million. I think they spent a good portion of this money on this set. And this, the set is wonderful. I mean, never have I ever seen a movie that's in such an enclosed space feel so big. Yeah, that, I was going to bring that up. To be something that is as enclosed as being on a train can be, they did a wonderful job of using all of that space and, and also letting us know how small it was, but then also how big it and long it could be. I thought it was great. I mean, it, you have a great speech by the minister Mason there about how so many of you are going to die and all this, and then they get into it and you get this big hyped-up music video kill scene. And one of the coolest parts of it is when – uh, Yona, Nimsu's daughter, says we're coming up on a really long stretch of, of black tunnel, and you guys are pretty much screwed. <laughs> and everybody puts on night vision goggles, except for, of course, the stern passengers. And the the ingenious way of getting around that was bring us a torch. And they get torches in there and light it back up so that they can turn the fight back in their direction, which I thought was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And also, definitely, definitely. also, you get Chris Evans is one of the first moments when you see him make a compromising type decision. His lieutenant, you know, his closest guy to him that we've met so far, Edgar, his guy's got him by a knife to his throat, and he's got a chance to go after Minister Mason and either capture her or, or you know, if he doesn't back off, the guy's obviously going to kill his, his friend, and he turns and lets him go. He's like, nope, it's, it's for the cause. It's the idea of who will you sacrifice along the way to get what you want. And I think that tells us a lot about this guy's character. Definitely. He's, he's a man on a mission. And, you know, it's the needs of the many outweigh, outweigh the needs of the few. You know, to, to, quote, mm-hmm. to quote Spock here and stuff. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's his mission in life that he, he wants to take over this train. That's what he's been trained to do. I think that's kind of what John Hurt and – we're going to find out a little bit later about John Hurt's, you know, true motivations, mm-hmm. but essentially why I think he's wanted to do this and done this, you know, as far as, you know, being trained up by John Hurt's character and stuff like that. I think in a way he's almost helped, you know, I guess you could say brainwash him in a way, saying yeah. oh, you have to take over the train, you got to be able to get us up to the front and no, no reason why, just except for just to take it over because their living conditions are bad. I mean, I guess that's a good yeah. reason as any, but... You know, yeah, yeah you find things, a little bit more about his character in a little bit, but yeah, yeah, but things are going to change. That's that's what they're fighting for, and I love how he he gives it 
up. I mean, he gives up his friend in order to move forward with it. And I thought that was great. I mean, it, it was a, a fabulous time and they actually are able to keep Mason. And what I love about this is, you know, in, in any other film, she'd have been dead and they'd have moved on. They keep her around for an extra beat, like an extra scene. She leads him to the next scene. She tries to act like, you know, she's their friend. She leads him to the school car where Allison Pill and a great cameo is doing this. It's like doing day school, but it's all the history of how they got on the, the train and how the train is everything. And Mr. Wilford is all this. And we hear about the revolution of the seven and we roll by these seven, you know, uh, frozen bodies in the in the snow. And these kids are all like, don't be stupid and go outside. And it's you talk about brainwashing. Clearly, the front classes and the middle class, I guess, is where we are now, is participating in that and i thought again you know to get into the symbolism of all this that's that's your symbolism for how middle classes are brainwashed by the government school to just go along with the status quo yeah very much i mean at this point though they've actually they've been able to kidnap or take hostage of tilda sweden's character and they're going through each of the cars they go through like the fruit car and everything like that they actually this is where it actually kind of starts getting even before they get to the the, uh, the school car which I question why it's so close to the back, but um, they go through and they get sushi. They actually get to try mm-hmm. food, you know, instead of those, you know, insect protein bars. And it's just kind of funny, the reaction on eating that and everything like that. So, oh, and they make her they eat one. That's, that's the thing. They make her eat one of the protein bars. Yep, they do. It kind of like, you know, try a little bit of, you know, what you've been giving us, you know, have, have a taste of your own medicine. But when they, when they get to the school car, I mean, it's just so funny in a way it's like you almost how you kind of you know always americans always kind of envision russia in a way you know <laughs> keep on talking about capitalism but this train car right here is you know very much you know communism or i guess you could even say americanism with you know the pledge of allegiance and you know everything oh, look, like look, that. It, it's, it's total it's total government subjugation that's what i'm saying is you yep. you train up a class of people in a certain way so that they think a certain way you you change the generation coming forward so that that's all they know and what we know is that this has been going on for 17 years and actually the 18th year the happy new year goes down in the middle of that other huge fight which was hilarious everybody stopped and did that and then they just went back to slice each other they're up but you had that and and what you'll hear is that chris evans was a teenager when he got on that train and now he's you know he's in his 30s and he's had he doesn't even remember the world the way it was he has no memory of what it was like and where this is supposed to be 2031 so that was supposed to be 2014 he has no memory of what today was like you know and and just as these children have only known what they've been told from the front and about wilford and his great train and all this stuff all Chris Evans knows is hardship, and I think they're—I think they're making a statement there. I don't think that's, uh, you know, by oh, mistake a, it, at all. It, def- it definitely is a, because right right now we can say they're they're in the middle class. Yes, of the train exactly, and 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 it's the low class looking at there going, you know, you guys are just being fed all this stuff. You really don't know what it exactly is like. I mean, it's almost like they're watching like a video on like the Rockefellers or like the Kennedys as like they're well, like these, it, you these know what videos it is up there. It, what it is is, and you know, I'm a gangster rap fan from the '90s for reasons that go beyond explaining on this podcast. But one of the things that always that is really strange. <laughs> one of the things that always it, it gets me about that form of music, and what I, I guess, have gravitated to, was how it was, it was put out there as a social message, as a you all in middle class white America think you know what's going on, but you have no idea. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell it to you and show it to you, and that's what I think. Groups like Public Enemy and NWA and stuff had a lot of things to say 
that were eye opening. And this is the lower class looking at the middle class going, y'all don't know shit about what life is really like out there. And it's, it's how they feel right or wrong. It's portraying that class struggle there. And that's what goes on What the, the turning of it is when the teachers and everybody else pull out a bunch of machine guns that are indeed loaded and they start to shoot everybody after they've you know, fooled them with a bunch of boiled eggs. Yeah, it's it is very very strange, and I guess you know you're only gonna get this with like a Korean type movie where you're gonna get a pregnant teacher <laughs> pulling out a gun. And, <laughs> yes. You know what? I mean, you know we we can we can get into politics and gun control and everything like that, but that was definitely uh, a little bit of a statement, especially with the NRA. Oh, or, you know, super totally. right wingers with arming teachers at school. <laughs> well, I look, mean, totally she, is. she's the blonde haired blue eyed pregnant teacher who pulls out a Mac 10 or whatever, a semi-automatic. And she machine pulls out gun. her Uzi on these kids. <laughs> yeah, to start shooting at them. I mean, it's insane. And, you know, again, of course, Evans' group gets the upper hand. They wind up wiping everybody out. And I love how they take out Minister Macy because she's going, no, we're friends or whatever. And he just shoots her right in the head. It's like, nope, I'm done. And I thought, now that was that was pretty strong. I, I thought that was a great moment. Oh, definitely. And I guess, you know, I mean, there's so much other stuff you can even take from the scene. I mean, the way that they're looking at the seven, you know, the seven people that tried getting off the, off the train and frozen. And it's, you know, maybe like a way a lot of the other cultures kind of look at Americans. I mean, you look at like even like the national anthem and stuff like that. It's all about war and, you know, fighting and bombs going off. And it's kind of like, in a way, aren't you guys kind of like romanticizing war in a way or romanticizing mm-hmm. death? And it's like the same way there where you got these seven people. And if you look at them, they're not adults. There are a couple kids that are frozen out there as well, and they're romanticizing these people as, you know, villains and people that tried to escape and look what happened to them. It almost kind of made them turn into like a monument themselves, a monument of how great their life is, how great Wilford is, and how stupid these rebellions are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's there's so much to be taken from just this one car, this one segment from this oh. film, and really this is where... I think when you when you read a lot of reviews online, this is where the movie changes for a lot of people. So you're either going to go with it at this point or you're going to fight against it. And mm-hmm. for me, I was completely going with it. Oh, I was totally sold on at this point. I love when movies make bold statements, even if I don't necessarily agree with the politics of it or the statement. I enjoy the challenge of having to look at it from a different point of view. Again, that's probably one of the reasons I like, you know, L.A. gangster rap. I'm not a gangster. I've never been one. Never will be. But I've known a few in my life. And, and But again, the idea of looking at something from a different point of view and sort of being forced to. You know, examine my own understandings and beliefs of life. It makes you look at it differently, and I like this film because it does that. And then we we get into through to the the idea of uh, um, Franco the Elder. This is like the main henchman, and I don't know who this guy is. He looks like. I don't know, several different character actors I've seen before. I've never seen him in anything else, I don't think. But he is one of the hardest to kill people I've ever seen. And I think you... Oh, this mean, is, like I said, video game. It's, yeah. It is, it is video game logic here. He is yeah. one of the the henchmen, one of the... Uh, he's not the main boss. But he's but a sub-boss, yeah. Yeah, he's one of the sub-bosses, one of the ones that's going to keep on coming back and bug, you know... You think you kill him, and you, nope, nope, he's still moving. So. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta keep, keep killing him, and then kill him some more. And as it turns out, you'll have to. It, he really doesn't die until the very, very end. So it's, I mean, it's pretty amazing what they have to do to to kill this guy. But he winds up taking out several of them. I mean, Octavia Spencer gets killed here. Several other get stabbed. They finally stab him, and they think they they've got him dead. 
and it's it's really just the three of them now at this point. It's it's Curtis, it's uh, Nimsu, and it's Yona who are moving forward. And they, they go through all of these elite cars where people are just – I mean, this is like the Great Gatsby on steroids, you know, just the complete indulgence. It's also where I had that, that Hellraiser flashback. Of like, this is the crazy train right here. You know, we're just well, – Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. They, they, go, they, go, they go from the, uh, the one car where the big battle happened with the guy, which is like the sauna car yeah. where everybody goes in like the hot tubs and now suddenly they're moving on to – it's essentially a rave club, a, yes. a rave car. Everybody's all, you know, they got like the neon stuff going on. They got the, you know, the sunglasses indoors. They got, you know, the drugs <laughs> on the table. They're yeah, all, the, the chronology I mean, is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the Jersey Shore people. <laughs> yes, very much so. And and I noticed that too that this was a very like it, it's American but it's very European you know influenced of that kind of club scene and just the the wasted youth you know that the that group of people that were just sitting there basically just drugging their lives away because they had nothing else better to do I mean right what are they what yeah. are you gonna do you know you don't have to go to work you don't have to, there's no jobs it's you're just there to kind of party all day long and they and I, I, I find yeah. No, I find find it funny too that you know they got they got these guys these rebels coming through, and they don't care at first. Yeah, nobody you know, says they're, anything they're... at first. Yeah, so it's yeah, not until they, they it's not until they've stole so much of the chrono that they actually rise up and start to do something about it. I mean, that's yeah, and, that's the bit. Yeah, and I think that's very very telling too. And I mean, the only reason they care is when their party stops. And one of the things I actually kind of found interesting, unless you know maybe we're meant to take that they're you know not showing us every car they go through. Well, where do these people sleep? Yeah, that's what I wanted to know, too. I mean, they did show some beds and bunks and things along the way, but I, I didn't know. I, I, I kind of actually took it as a people just slept where they were, you know, and that they had maybe access to move. It, as the farther you got up the train, the more access you had to other cars. Was maybe that was what I understood, and that in the back, you pretty much were just in the back. Mm-hmm. So... But I, I don't know. You know, it's a good question. It's not not completely answered. But I like the the movement and how we get through these. And then when we get outside that door, we get a great bit of exposition because uh, Nimsu tells. Um, hold on a second. <clears throat> I'm going dry here. Hold on. Nimsu tells Everett that look we can you know we've got enough of this stuff together here let's push it you know we'll mash it all together we'll blow open the train and we'll escape and he explains that he's been watching this plane buried in snow coming around every year that's less and less buried so he thinks the earth is warming he actually drops that on him and even though i didn't have the subtitles i got that from it you know because of the way evans reacts to him and still keeps talking you know back and forth to him and they have this great conversation and and this is where chris evans i think you talked about you know the big action star he is stuff like that i actually think he's he's a really good up and coming actor and i'll recommend a film of his that's lesser known called uh, puncture that is one of the first real dramatic things he did it was right in the middle of captain america and some other stuff he was doing it's an amazing performance and it's very similar to this one where he plays someone that is really screwed up and he essentially tells his whole story of why he has to confront the creator of the train and the hierarchy and he tells all of this about in the back how people lost their you know limbs because they were basically eating each other before the protein bars came about and that he never had the courage to cut his own arm off and that he hates that he knows the way people taste and that babies taste the best that to me made me sit up out of my chair and go what did you just say 
Well, well, the part that got to me too, though, is he's telling the story, and he's leaving out a part to the story. Essentially, the story was that they were running out of food, and they were resorting to cannibalism and eating, you know, the weaker people, eating kids and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And that one of the guys who was John Hurt's character, who we find out earlier, and you know, a little bit before this, that he was actually a turncoat. He was actually working with Wilford, but we'll get into that more in a little bit. But yeah, he's already he been actually, executed at this point. Yeah, yeah, he's already been executed at this point. And what he does is John Hurt's character actually cuts off his arm, yeah. and he gives it to them for basically food, saying, you know, st- st- stop killing. You know, if we have to do this, this is what we'll do. And he cuts off his arm, and every, you know, a lot of different passengers are cutting off limbs and everything like that. I think even John Hurt ends up cutting off a leg or something, too, yeah. to be able to... He literally gives an arm and a leg for the cause. Yep, exactly. And then you find out later that Chris Evans was actually one of the people that was going around killing people, and that he was the one who... John Hurt, one of the guys that John Hurt gave his arm to to stop killing people. Right. And it wasn't long after that they came up with the protein pack and and all that stuff. But the fact that he reveals all that about himself, about cannibalism and all of these things, it lets you know that he is just as crazy as everyone else that he's been fighting against. That's a real turn when you take your main protagonist and you give him such a deep, dark secret it's like i was trying to liken it to something that i couldn't think of a good example but it's it's when the person you've been rooting for all along turns out to be just as dirty as everybody else that they were going against you know oh definitely but i it's it it is a little bit different though than the other people in the car because you think about what they were doing they're doing it for survival and everybody else in the train is doing it to keep their position where it is. Exactly. Not, not necessarily for survival, but to kind of prevent that lower class from rising up. So, again, a lot of stuff to think about when you actually kind of compare it to the society that we live in now. And that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there are people out there who have jobs who are essentially is just to keep the lower class down just so they could keep what they have. Yeah, and once he finally gets in the door, I mean, the yellow coat woman comes back out. She shoots Minsu and gets him off to the side, and Curtis goes inside to meet with Wilford. And it's a long exposition scene, and this is when we get Ed Harris. And to me, Ed Harris is one of these really underappreciated character actors that in the right roles and the right places can deliver some incredible performances. And this one does not disappoint. I really liked him as Wilford here. This one actually, his performance, or I guess just his, the way that he comes off really reminded me a lot of History of Violence, where he had a small role in there mm-hmm. as well. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Yes, yes. But just like kind of like this mafia enforcer that's hunting Viggo Mortensen's character. And he kind of reminded me a lot there. And it shows, you know, Ed Harris is very good, especially when he's doing like these kind of bit parts like this. And. You see this guy, and you don't know who Wilford is. You don't know what to expect. I mean, part of me is like thinking, okay, what's going to be the twist here? Is Wilford going to be like a computer program or something like that? Or is Wilford just going to be, you know, are they totally going to play it up? And he's just like, you know, almost like a statue, like, you know, the Mother Mary is or something like that, that these people are all serving. And there's really, you know, no one that they're really serving <laughs> except he, for this, like, wannabe higher power, you know? You know what? I, I actually wondered for a minute before they opened the door and revealed it to be him if this was going to be like Lord of the Flies and he was just going to be this dead person on a stick or something, you know? That, that's all it was going to be. Because they, I, I think was they, even thinking, yeah. I was even thinking, too, that maybe 
maybe it's Chris Evans. Ooh, that would have even been a tw- you know more of a mind twist, yeah. So, but you know, but but he opens the door and there's you know, there's Ed Harris and he's just you know I don't know if he's lost a lot of weight for this role or maybe he's suffering from cancer or something. But <laughs> I think he's man, just older. I mean, I think he's. Just I, but he older. he looked older, but man, yeah. was he's a he's a. The, Turning, I want to kind of say decrepit, but he's a pretty look pretty malnourished. I think the part of the way they play it is that you know the idea is that he's up there, you know, eating steak, living high on the hog or whatever. And when you finally meet him, you finally see him, you realize how old and frail he is. That even in spite of having all that luxury, all those advantages, etc., he's still not in the greatest of health. Because what kind of health can you really maintain living near that, you know, somewhat nuclear engine and all that stuff? I mean, it's goodness doesn't. What we find out is that the reason they've been taking the kids from the back to the front is that there was a part that wore out on the train that they can't replace anymore. So they just get small children the age of five that can sit there and turn this one widget around and around until they die and then they just pop another kid in. And I'm like, man, you talk about disposable workforce. That's a whole other twisted level of this. Well, I think it's also kind of funny, too, that the one main guy at the top, I mean – you know, current president excluded is a old white male. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the old white man behind the behind the curtain. You know, the odds and all that again. Yeah. So it definitely is. Yeah. And what, what what you find out now is the the entire twist of the movie, or the, the big twist of the movie, is that John Hurt's character was always working with Ed Harris's character, and yeah. essentially. What they do is they set up the rebellions, and they've been setting these up ever since the train's been going on as a way of population control. Exactly. That they get these people to rise up just so they can essentially kill them without really just going back there and killing them. I mean, yeah. I think, the, I think the thought is that if they just go back there and just start randomly killing people that they wanted to see more of like a natural – I guess maybe natural progression is not the correct phrase here, but well, something that they, they gave they, it. A, they, they asked for it. They gave it a reason, and and the metaphor there, at least the way I read it, is you know, you have the rich upper class and maybe even somebody in the lower class working for them that create wars to thin out the population because who fights the wars? Not the rich kids. You know, it's the it's the poor kids that are looking for a better life by joining the military and things like that, and you know, that's how this is fought as well. And he even talks about how your revolution was so much better though. we had to kill Gilliam. I, I couldn't let that go by, but I'm willing to just turn all this over because I'm old and I'm tired and I, I'm tired of doing this and it's time for somebody else to take it. That's the part that got me was I figured he was just going to lean up and shoot him at some point. And no, he lets him live. Yeah. And what I think it's also kind of interesting, even when you kind of look at it, like, from, you know, the perspective you just brought up is that, you got all these people, you know, you got the you got the poor and you got the middle fighting each other, much like they do today, and it's all in service of one guy at the top who has it all. Yeah. And it's like, you really think about it, it's like, this one guy is playing everybody. Mm-hmm. And everybody is killing each other and doing all this stuff, and it's for what? The embed and, you know, betterment of... A couple, or well, in this case, one person. It's really just to keep everybody in line. That's the thing, is that you realize how pointless it is, and that's why Evans' character goes along with the idea of, you know, screw this, we're going to go ahead and blow it, because while this is going on, you know, Minsu's outside fighting with the, the unkillable henchmen, and the, the all the ravers are in there fighting. It's all going down, going to hell in the back. And Mind you, the ravers are only fighting now because... <laughs> 
because their party got broken up. Yeah, yeah, their party got broken up. But again, they, they've got all this craziness going on back there, and he finally gets the the explosive, and he gets the one match that's left because Evan smokes a cigarette while he's telling all that other stuff earlier, and he's got one match left, and he gives it to Yona, who fights and you know lights the fuse on the thing and while uh, her father and and uh evans are you know looking around to see what to do next they basically bear hug her and the other kid to shield them from the explosion that comes down and it i mean you talk about something they spent money on this effect sequence was fabulous i loved every bit of the train getting derailed here oh definitely i mean i'm just gonna give credit where credit's due the Special effects and just set pieces throughout this entire movie is so well done. It almost makes you kind of wonder, too, like these movies that spend like $250 million. It's like, <laughs> what are you guys spending all your money on? I mean, you look at something like this. Okay, yeah, there's not superheroes flying around or cities being explo- exploding up, but how far they're able to stretch that much money and actually just, you know, build these sets and do the special effects the way they do in this explosion at the end. It's, you know, it's money well spent and it looks fantastic. Oh yeah, it it is wonderful. Now, what did you make of the ending, where the the two you know the two survivors walk out of the train? They're in the heavy coats. They're not dead, and they see the polar bear. Because I summed it up as you know th- that means there's life out there. Her dad was right, but there's I've read a lot of different versions of what the end of this really means. I honestly had no idea what to make of it. I basically took what you took, but I think that's kind of I mean not to rip on both of us, but I think that's kind of just like a surface level interpretation of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've been talking like, you know, so much about analogies and subtext here and stuff like that throughout the movie. And this end part is something I just, I didn't know what they were trying to get at. You know, maybe it's just me being dumb at this point, but (laughs) what what, what are some of the other uh, theories that you read about? All all kinds. I mean, it it goes all off the rails. I don't want to get into all those. They're out there on the internet. You can Google them and read them for yourself. I think the thing I got from it was that it's left for you to be able to decide, but the the way I came up with that ending and the the way I wrote it in the plot summary there was – that Minsu was right, that there are parts of this earth that are now inhabitable. And the fact that they run into that bear means, well, if you know anything about just ecological systems and stuff, if that bear's out there, it's got to have something that it feeds on, right? Which means that has something it feeds on, which means there's life out there. Maybe it's only animal life, but there's life out there that is that is existing now. So there is a chance, and you know, to borrow a line from uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in uh, Jurassic Park, your know, life finds a way. And I, I kind of took it as that that you know, after 17 years, that there was enough uh, warming effect in the part of the world they were at that yeah, there was a chance still. And uh, and it's also I think if you want to look at it metaphorically, is that y- you get told the story and the narrative is that this is the only way it is, and outside of here is you're going to die if you break away and break away and finally when somebody breaks away you realize that well no maybe maybe we don't die maybe we do continue to go on because not everything is set in stone and history changes and, you know that's well that, there's that, that bear's gonna see them and uh, <laughs> is that bear gonna go and try to eat them <laughs> i don't know maybe he's gonna offer him a coca-cola he was a white polar bear that's I what know. i was gonna say too i said this movie would have been awesome if it ended with him just like popping open a coke and <laughs> that will happen when the wayans kid. brothers remake it and and the snowpiercer is a huge dick on a track, but uh, that's probably where it'll go. But Nick, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Snowpiercer? Um, I'm gonna have to go with an extra large popcorn here. Um, as I said, um, 
first tried watching this in a drunken stupor and picked up a lot of it in the beginning, but I was so impressed with what I saw, I had to go back and rewatch it, to which point I went back and rewatched it again to actually watching it with my family uh, during my uh, Christmas holiday back home. So, yeah, I've seen this movie now basically three and a half times, and I think it's just, it, it's it's a great movie in the way that it's very artsy, very foreign, but in a very palatable way to the American audience. And just any everywhere from the acting to the direction to just the art design, special effects, just even the little camera movements throughout the movie, it is just a perfect movie from beginning to end. And I don't say that much. And I can't recommend it enough. I really think that you can just take this as like a straight apocalypse movie with these people going from beginning to end and just a bunch of weird stuff there. Or you can try to read into maybe what the director was trying to get there with, you know, capitalism and how it kind of sets up the caste system and how you got a guy at the top who's essentially having people fight wars just to essentially, you know, ensure his place at the top. Um, so many different ways you can take it. Still don't understand the ending a little bit, but I'm actually putting that on myself as opposed to the movie. So... Yeah, extra large popcorn, perfect, perfect movie, highly recommended. You know, I like movies that make me think and moreover make me want to have conversations about them when they're done. There's very few of those, and even a fewer list of them that we've reviewed here. Heat, which kicked the year off with, was one of those things. You know, that even though I, you know, effusively will praise that movie to death, it also has things that make me think and want to talk about it. Uh, you know, The Dark Knight is, is one, one of those, those. Is one of those things Val Kilmer's elbow? <laughs> no, well, we actually did mention that in the podcast, oddly <laughs> enough. But, uh, but you know, there's, there's so many things about good movies that make you talk about them and think about them. You know, The Dark Knight, Inception, uh, Interstellar last year. I mean, I, you know, I was begging people to have conversation with me about that, even though I needed a slide rule and you know two physics degrees to understand most of it. I like things like that that make me think, but also that introduce me to stuff that I don't take in a lot. I don't get a lot of Asian cinema and and Korean cinema, so to see that and to be able to take that in in a very palatable way, like you said makes this even more enjoyable. And I, I'll tell you the thing that really sells me on this whole bit. Tilda Swinson's great in it. Hurt and Ed Harris are good. Octavia Spencer's a lot of fun. But Chris Evans is what sells me on this movie. He totally gives this performance everything it needs. Fabulous performance. Can't say enough about how good it is. And I'm going to join you in that extra large popcorn. I think this is a fabulous film and definitely one to watch. But I'll, I'll say this now. It's not for everybody. I think some people will, will watch this and just not really dig it, not get into it. If you're the kind of person that likes stuff that makes you think, that you want to have a conversation about afterward, this one is definitely for you. Um, it is not uh, the you know blow them up and walk away kind of film it definitely will, will force you to have conversations but uh but it's, it's you know what you're saying jay is that if you if you if you look, if you're smarter think you're smart this is the movie for you but if you're stupid no, you're not gonna like it. No, no you know what i'll tell you what if your kind of entertainment is fast and furious five awesome i'm right there with you i like that too but if you want something that'll that'll push your buttons and make you think a little bit in addition to giving you some of that that tropism then this one is definitely for you so extra large popcorn for me but I think also, you know, kind of getting into it is how, how people view movies and everything is mm -hmm. that, you know, like I was saying, I think this movie is a perfect movie. I understand that, you know what, probably 50% of people are not going to like this movie or think it's okay. But I think that's the definition of a perfect movie for someone is that a perfect movie to you is not going to be a perfect movie to everybody. Right, right. There's some people still don't like 2001 A Space Odyssey, and, you know, that's fine if that's not your kind of thing. You know, I happen to really adore that film, but 
I, I would tell you now that's not for everybody. <laughs> you know, it's just... yeah, I know. I hear it all the time. Some people don't like the Godfather movies and stuff like that. And, that, and those are typically universally acclaimed movies. But I think you know when you look at like movies that are really going to speak to you and movies that you're going to go back and revisit and watch. A lot of times you're going to find out that that movie is just something about that that was almost like that movie was made for you. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how I feel with this movie is that this movie was made for me in the way, you know, especially with like my beliefs in politics and capitalism and everything like that. I really, this movie just spoke to me in such a way that I don't think I have movie I haven't seen in the longest time has. So yeah, I can't say it better myself. As a fabulous experience. Glad we got a chance to review it here. Folks, thanks for joining us in this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes at our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Find the link to your podcast adventure there. Got The Art of Slang, The Buffy the Vampire Slayer Retrospective. You've got Squared Circle Flashback, which is uh, Brian's uh, wrestling review podcast of uh, uh, old uh, WWE Network uh, pay-per-views of years gone by. You can find links, of course, to Filmstrip here, um, all of our different kinds of movie reviews, some which we've dropped in the, the show here. And you can also find a uh, link to the Fabish Factor uh, film podcast where Kurt, Nick, several others come in and uh, talk about different topics. It's with that that we have to say goodbye now, folks, for a while. Um, this is the last episode of Filmstrip. Uh, at least in the form that it exists now, the retrospective format. From April 2010 through you know, now the, just the 1st of May 2015, we have recorded 160 individual different reviews or episodes about you know, different kinds of uh, films that we wanted to review or even sometimes just general discussion stuff that when we would do those here. And it has been a blast. Um, I have really re- enjoyed all of this. Um, our podcast team, Anna, Brian, Nick, Kurt, Ron, have all been a part of the, the show. Even my wife, Rachel, jumped in there for a little while and, and did uh, Twilight with us last uh, year. And it's been a blast, but it's time to do something different. And uh, we're going to put the show on hiatus for a while until we decide what that different is going to be. Um, and you know, hopefully someday Filmstrip will come back. It'll just be in a different format, but the episodes that are there now will always be there, and we really appreciate your support, and I mean that personally. I've really enjoyed being a part of this show, but uh, as all things do, it's time to come to an end, and it's time to do some different things, so um, we appreciate your support, and really from the bottom of my heart, personally, I want to thank each of you who've taken time to write a review, or have posted our stuff, and retweeted this and all that. We really appreciate it. It's been a been a blast and i appreciate it too and uh, i've had a lot of fun with this i hope you've enjoyed it as well and hopefully someday uh you know in the future we'll be able to do something uh, similar or, or something again but uh this is the end of film strip uh but we uh, wouldn't like to say goodbye we'll just say ta-ta for now and uh, thanks again for your support folks so for the last time this is jay signing off for continuous play podcast film strip <laughs>